BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us is Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Socialism, and rdwolf with two fs.com, also one of his websites. You can tweet him at Prof Wolf, as in Professor Wolf. Oxfam America has just come out and called for a tax on pandemic profiteers. There's a whole bunch of corporations that are making more money than, than before. Kind of shades of, was it Nixon or Carter, who had the windfall profits tax on oil producers back during the Arab oil embargo? Yeah, this is an old idea. It's gone by the name of windfall profits, excess profits, a variety of terms. We've done that in the United States, World War One and Two, and so forth. So there's precedent for it. The basic idea is simple. If the nation faces a catastrophic emergency, like a war, let alone a world war, or you might say like a pandemic happening together uh, with an economic crash like we're going through now, that that ought to be a good enough reason to say to businesses, we will not bother you about the profits you've been earning. But if during a time of national catastrophe, where we need resources to deal with overcoming the problem and the crisis, any extra profit you make should be taxed away and used by the government to fight the pandemic, to fight the unemployment, to fight the war, whatever the crisis was. We know, for example, that all kinds of companies through nothing of their own, just sitting there with manna from heaven falling on them because we can't go to a store, we have to order the stuff delivered, because we can't uh, go to a restaurant, we have the food delivered, and so on. All kinds of businesses are making excess profits, way more than they did before. United Health of the day reported record profits. Why? Because people are so strapped for money that they can't afford to see the doctor or the hospital or the clinic because the deductible or the copay is simply more than they want now to risk, or they're afraid of catching COVID at any of these institutions. So the premiums have been rolling in to United Health, health insurance company, but they're not having to pay out anything because no one's going to the doctor or the hospital, giving us the additional crazy statistic that in the middle of a medical emergency, nurses and doctors Doctors are being laid off around the country, which is the case. So in any case, for all of these reasons, it has been thought reasonable, fair, and prudent to take whatever increase in profits companies make because of and on top of a national crisis and use them to fight and end that crisis for everybody's sake, rather than to allow the uh, profits of people already making good money to become even larger while we have millions of people unemployed, etc. Yeah, if I'm remembering my history right, Franklin Roosevelt gave a speech as we were heading into World War II, essentially saying that I will not allow one person to become a millionaire as a result of our current emergency, you know, the World War II. And he created a congressional commission in the Senate to investigate war profiteering. And the guy who was in charge of that was Harry Truman. Am I remembering that correctly? This was, and then he, Truman became his VP the next time around? This was when Henry Wallace was his VP? I don't remember whether that was Truman or not, but I do remember, Mm -hmm. and I can certainly corroborate, 
your memory about what Roosevelt did. Let me tell you what he did, because it'll drive the point home in another kind of way. It's 1942, and he sends a message to the, uh, to the Congress saying, at this is a time of war, it is not reasonable for me to ask millions of American men and women to lay down their lives to fight a war, while other people, not taking any comparable risk, are becoming rich off of the very war that threatens them. And therefore, I propose, and this he did as a sitting president, I propose that we have a 100% top rate of income tax. Anyone earning, this is the proposal at that time, anyone earning $25,000 or more, because that was the highest uh, bracket that they had then. And by the way, that'd be about uh, what uh, three, four hundred thousand dollars in today's money. That's right. Be about four hundred thousand dollars right now if you adjust it for changing prices. So anyone who earned over twenty-five thousand dollars as of 1942, said President Roosevelt, should be taxed at 100 percent. In effect, he was saying for the duration of the war, of the national crisis catastrophe, nobody would be allowed to become richer off of the sacrifices of men and women in uniform, etc., etc. And he sent that message to the Congress. The Republicans went ballistic, as you might imagine. But after all the yelling and so forth subsided, they did pass a bill, and Roosevelt signed it, and the highest bracket for Americans to think about that was agreed to by both parties, 94%. Every dollar that a rich person earned over 25000 per year was 94 cents of that dollar had to be sent to Uncle Sam to pay for the war, and only six cents could be kept by that wealthy person. And yes. there was a consensus across the country that was a good thing. And to a large extent, that tax rate stayed in place until Lyndon Johnson dropped it down to 74 percent in 19, what was it, 67, as I recall. Um, right. It's important it, to it, remind Americans and particularly our politicians that the president who put a maximum income into effect, a proposal of 100 percent tax, was shortly after that the recipient of an award that we have given to no other person, namely the most popular president in the United States, re-elected three times. Because of policies like that, it's not a recipe for political disaster. It's literally the opposite. The other question I had for you today is we just got our unemployment numbers. 1.4 million more people applied for unemployment benefits last week. My understanding is there's 25 million Americans who are drawing unemployment benefits right now. The Republicans are fighting over whether they should cut that $600 a week benefit down to $200 or $100 or zero. And that battle goes on. But you know, 25 million people drawing unemployment benefits. And my recollection is there's only 115 million people or households in the workplace. So how do we come up with this 11% unemployment rate when you got 25 million people unemployed and just slightly more than 100 million people in the workforce. What am I missing? There's two things here. Number one, the labor force does not count people that are not basically looking for work. Even if those people would take a job if one were offered to them, the way the government keeps the statistics, it's called what part of the population is quote-unquote in the business of looking for or seeking work. We number them roughly these days at 150 million. Then they count those that are actively looking for work as the unemployed versus those who have a job as the employed. They, however, also count people who are temporarily not looking. Those are out of the those are in the labor force, but out of the unemployed. In other words, you play around with the numbers. Mr. Trump uses the lowest one. Most economists use a much higher one. And he's counting on people not being aware of what the counting issues are. A story over at Yahoo News about how the Fed has raised their balance sheet from 4.2 trillion to 7 trillion. These are uh, assets that they bought, corporate bonds and stocks and things. That's a mind-boggling amount of money, $3 trillion. And then we've got a report that came out that there's an over $800 billion deficit just last month in the month of June, which is you know greater than typically an annual deficit. Japan's debt-to-GDP ratio has been over 200% 
for some years. Ours has been around, you know, floating around 100%. Can you explain kind of the difference between those two, how sustainable this is, if we can learn anything from Japan, and what this means to the average American? Okay, let me try. First, you're right. This is an unprecedented injection of brand new money into the economy. That's what it means. The Federal Reserve is our central bank. That is its responsibility. And it has reacted both to the pandemic, but also to the serious recession in the United States that began, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, in February of this year, actually a bit before the virus really hit us. It's worse than anything we had foreseen, both of these things, and the Federal Reserve's response is to do what it mainly is called upon to do, which is to shape the monetary system of the United States to solve its problems. It now believes clearly that the problem is so severe, so profound, so threatening to everything that the United States economy and society have been and are, that an unprecedented injection of over $3 trillion and more counting, because they're doing this every day now, has to be done, number one. Number two, it is separate from the national debt. The national debt is not, not something that the Federal Reserve directly is concerned with. The national debt has to do with something done by the United States Treasury, not the Federal Reserve. And the job of the Treasury is to borrow money when the government spends more than it takes in in taxes. Since we're in a crisis, pandemic plus recession, the government has to spend like crazy for the same reasons of stimulating the economy that drive the Federal Reserve. But in order for the government to do that, the Treasury, spend a lot, it either would have to tax people, which would make it even more unpopular than it already is, or else borrow. Since the Trump administration gave one of the biggest tax cuts in history, barely two years ago, December of 2017, we're in a very bad place when it comes to spending a lot of stimulus money, so the Treasury borrows, issues IOUs, borrows money, and spends like the proverbial sailor. So we have the Treasury pumping in stimulus by borrowing money that would otherwise sit there, and the Federal Reserve pumping money into the economy. So, of course, any astute observer should understand that after all the dust clears, the extra money being created out of nothing by the Federal Reserve finds its way, in part, into the hands of the government to fund this extraordinary spending in excess of taxes. The last thing, this combination means that there is no mystery about the peculiar and rather sick performance of our capitalism right now, in which we have over 50 million people having to go on unemployment for shorter or longer periods of time, a desperate uh, decline in the standard of living of the mass of our people on the one hand, and a booming stock market on the other. And the reason is simple. All that extra money that the Federal Reserve pumps in. Only part of it funds the deficit spending of the U.S. government. The other part goes directly into the stock market where it fuels the buying and selling of stocks as they are flipped from one person to another, everybody using the easy money they can get, the new money from the Federal Reserve, to buy shares and sell them to the other guy who's doing exactly the same thing. And that produces what we call a stock market bubble, which is what everybody who is watching this process is holding their breath about, because if and when that happens, everything is going to crash. And the Federal Reserve, we all know, is so terrified that it has committed itself to keep pumping in money as long as necessary. But that's an open-ended invitation to produce what could be the worst bubble in the history of capitalism. It's like the old saying, we have a wolf by the ears and don't know how to let him go. Everyone says, gee, the Federal Reserve will keep 
pumping in the money to keep this rising stock market going. Yeah, maybe it will. Then again, in the end, these are companies, and if our underlying economy disintegrates, which is what's going on, then eventually these companies will not be able to deliver the dividends or the kind of real income that the people speculating in the stocks will expect. And then they'll all run to the door, and then the people who have been the last ones to buy realize they may get stuck with the unsellable share, so they'll quickly drop the price, and we can see the crash down literally unfolding if and when any kind of shock happens to drive people in the stock market from the kind of so, view now that it'll never stop, which is typical of bubbles, to the view, right. I've got to get out, I've got to get out, which is typical of what happens when the bubbles burst. What do you think about this theory that Jay Powell, number one, is not an economist. He was a bankster. He's the, the first non-economist in a long, long time. Number two, he's clearly been politically influenced, intimidated, and threatened by Trump and you know, doing something that no Fed chair has ever done before. What do you think about this theory that if Joe Biden wins in November, the day after the election, that's the point at which Jay Powell says, "Okay, we're no longer going to support this thing and all hell breaks loose. And the Republicans and Donald Trump blame it all on the fact that Americans elected a Democrat and the market freaked out. Absolutely. Is that a possible scenario? You bet. Look, the stock market going up, if you pay attention to the evening news, is the only thing that this president now desperate can point to he's presided over the worst failure in dealing with the pandemic imaginable you know this country has four and a half percent of the world's population and 25 percent of the world's covid cases and covid deaths i mean that's a screaming failure if you ever saw one and ditto the economy so if there wasn't a stock market being boomed up by the federal reserve there would be nothing for this uh, president to point to to exculpate himself at least with those who are rich so yes they might bail the minute mr biden wins the election if he does and that would plunge the new administration into a horrific crisis not so different in a way from what bush uh, handed over to mr obama and you add that to the fact that it's been 32 years since the majority of americans actually voted to elect a republican president it's plain boggling professor wolf thank you so much my pleasure thank you tom thank you great talking with you rdwolf.com and democracywork.info. This is the Tom Hartman Program. James in Spokane, Washington. Hey, James, what's up? To control our story at all, we have to admit to what it is to a great extent. We're mostly, in this country at least, PTSD, neurotic. Until we address that, I don't see how it's going to get better for anybody. Concern of the coronavirus or anything else is just continuing from generation to generation. So what's your suggestion for fixing that, James? Nothing directly, Tom, except we have to own the fact that we are as neurotic as we are. Stop thinking of anyone as being crazy. We're all fundamentally fundamentally malformed psychologically and emotionally. We we need to own that and address that. That's all. I mean, alcoholism, for instance. My God, we're, we're an alcoholic nation. We're led by alcoholic politicians who are mostly or, you know, part-time, if not full-time alcoholics. And, you know, I don't see it getting better until we own these things. I would go a step further. I think that there are things that we can do about this. I think that if you look at the evidence of other nations that have built political, economic, and social structures that work to lift up average people, working people, and protect poor people, you have a very different way of life and a very different psychology and thus very different social outcomes from countries that practice radical laissez-faire capitalism like the United States and the United Kingdom. The U.S. and the U.K. are the two most unequal developed countries in the world and as a consequence have among the highest rates of a whole series of social ills that we now know from the research of Kate Pickett and, and Wilkerson, James Wilkerson, I'm pretty sure his name is, who wrote The Spirit Level and The Inner Level and Why Inequality Matters. What they documented, and you can compare European country to European country, you can compare countries all around the world to each other, you can compare individual states in the United States, is that the more inequality there is, 
The more you have mental illness, the more you have unwanted pregnancies, the more you have sexually transmitted diseases, the more you have homicide and suicide, the more you have drug use and addiction, alcohol use and addiction would fall into that category. The more you have social disengagement, disengagement from political systems, the less participation you have in civil society and governance. You have higher rates of theft and petty crime. You have higher rates of antisocial personality disorders. All of these things, these are not things that come because people are poor because somebody is rich. These are things that happen because there is a disparity in society between very rich people and very poor people. And we're not wired for that. We spent three million years living as tribes that took care of each other. We are wired to be social, to be here for each other. And this just breaks all that apart. I'm proud to say that I am a uh, subscriber to the newsletter that my old colleague and friend David Sirota produces, TMI. He's a, a journalist. He's the editor-at-large at Jacobin Magazine. He's the author of three books, the former senior advisor to the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. DavidSirota.com is his website where you can find out about his newsletter. And you can tweet him, of course, at David Sirota. David, welcome back to the program. Great to have you with us. You've been writing about how the 1% are cheating us out of a quarter trillion dollars in taxes every year? A new government report that came out from the Congressional Budget Office, which found that between 2011 and 2013, $381 billion of taxes went unpaid every single year. Now, if you combine that finding, which just came out at the end of last week, with a recent Harvard University study that showed the top 1% are responsible for about 70% of that tax gap, you get the full picture. That every single year, the top 1% are not paying about a quarter trillion dollars of taxes that they owe, but that go, again, unpaid. So we're not talking about, you know, uh, higher or lower taxes, which tax rates. We're talking about just the taxes that are owed. A quarter trillion dollars a year is not being paid taxes that are owed to the U.S. government by the top 1%. And if you start thinking about what that quarter trillion dollars could pay for, it starts to get, you know, kind of mind-boggling here. I mean, a quarter trillion dollars, Bernie Sanders, the uh, who, who requested that uh, Congressional Budget Office study, put it this way. He said, with the money that these tax cheats owe this year alone, we could fund tuition-free college for all, eliminate child hunger, ensure clean drinking water for every American household, build half a million affordable housing units, provide masks to everybody, produce protective and medical supplies our healthcare workers need to combat the pandemic, and fully fund the U.S. Postal Service. That's just with the money, again, that the top 1% owes but doesn't pay in taxes every single year. I recall during the Reagan administration and the first Bush administration, there was a lot of talk about the evil IRS and all this kind of stuff. But correct me if I'm wrong, my recollection is that it was really during the George W. Bush administration that they aggressively started the defunding of the Internal Revenue Service. And that in the first weeks of the Trump administration, they, or maybe the first months, they announced that they were offering early retirement to uh, as many of, as, as I recall, the number that's in my head, and again, I, this is from memory, David, my apologies, but is that they offered 15,000 out of 57,000 workers. Now, I might be mixing this up with Social Security Administration, early retirement. So basically what's happened is that this is classic star of the beast, Reagan's, you know, David Stockman's strategy. The IRS is down to the point where they almost can't do anything about this. In fact, they're more frequently auditing the returns of people who have an earned income tax credit. In other words, the government gives them money because their income is so low. People are making under 20,000 bucks a year. They're more frequently auditing those returns than they are the returns of very wealthy people. And, and, and I realize there's fewer wealthy people, but you know what I'm talking about. I'm not saying in, necessarily in absolute numbers. As a percentage, you're more likely to be audited if you're poor, basically. And that is a reflection of the budget situation that you outlined. There have been massive budget cuts to the IRS. That's absolutely true over the last about 10 years. Uh, and it co- look, it costs more per audit 
to audit the super rich and and ultimately process a civil or a criminal case against the super rich than it does to audit the poor because the super rich are using complex tax schemes uh, and have an armies of lawyers. I should mention corporations as well, auditing corporations. So you have a situation where massive budget cuts have driven down the audit rates of corporations and the wealthy uh, to the point where poor people are being audited as frequently or even more frequently uh, as the super rich, even though most of the money in unpaid taxes uh, in aggregate is coming from or would be owed by the top 1%. And here's a stat about what's gone on in the Trump administration, which which we reported on in at TMI, which is that over the last five years, the Trump Justice Department has been prosecuting far fewer criminal cases referred by the IRS, referred to the DOJ, 66% fewer criminal prosecutions off of IRS referrals in the last five years under Trump. It's, it's mind-boggling. And, and then you add to that the fact that for every dollar spent on enforcement by the Internal Revenue Service, multiples, and I don't have that number in front of me, perhaps you do, but for every dollar we spend, we get a hell of a lot more than one dollar back. And yet the Republicans and some Democrats have, for the better part of 40 years, been cutting the budget of the IRS. Yes. I mean, in the, in the CBO report, I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me, but what they basically say is, Tax enforcement is one of those things where if you spend money, you actually gain more money back. In other words, spending on rebuilding the IRS's enforcement budget actually isn't just deficit neutral. It actually increases revenue to the federal government because you're you're ending up being able to collect the taxes that are actually owed. Uh, now, look, Trump has put forward most recently a budget that puts a little bit more money into enforcement. But the experts basically say that this needs to be a multi-year rebuilding of this agency. And again, the costs are just enormous. I mean, $250 billion a year, I mean, that is astronomical amounts of money that are effectively being stolen by the super rich every single year. I mean, that's the other part. $250 billion every single year. It's just, it's, that is not small change. That is a huge amount of money. Are there any efforts to do anything about this anywhere in our government, David Sirota? Well, yeah. I mean, look, there, are some, there have been some progressives who have been pushing for uh, higher uh, spending on enforcement. That was what the whole CBO study was about, which is that if you put money into enforcement, you will gain more revenue back. Uh, but but again, you, you're going to have an army of corporate lobbyists uh, and, 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 and those kinds of folks who don't really want the IRS to... Uh, to Aren't Republicans to really sane in... In, in, in fighting any effort to expand or, or to, to rebuild the IRS, I mean, let's be clear, it's been torn apart. Uh, aren't the Republicans saying, by opposing any efforts to put the IRS back into place, that they are just nakedly, openly, right up front, proud, waving the flag of, we are the politicians who are the pets of, the wholly owned subsidiaries of, the toadies of the billionaire class, period, full stop, and to hell with everybody else in America. Well, what they basically set up is a, is a self-reinforcing uh, ideology that doesn't make them admit essentially what you just said. What they basically said is, you know, for the last 10 years, a lot of the rhetoric was the IRS, as you, as you suggested, is sort of this uh, overzealous, uh, monstrous agency, and therefore we need to pare it back, we need to limit the IRS, uh, and, and that justified the budget cuts. Now, fast forward to today, and what you often hear from the Republicans is, oh, well, look, we can't afford it. We, we, we you know, maybe, maybe we've cut too far. Maybe the, maybe the budgets of these agencies has been cut too much. But you know what? Now we've got a big deficit, so now we can't afford it. That assumes, of course, that, that the public won't understand that, again, investing in the IRS is one of those investments where you end up gaining more revenue. But the Republicans have created a kind of circular logic that they can use the deficit to justify continued cutting. Well, they use the deficit to justify everything. It's an old trick. David, David Sirota, check out his website, davidsirota.com. Subscribe to his newsletter. Just incredible journalistic work that David has been doing. davidsirota.com. Thanks, David. Thank you, Tom.
Tom Hartman here with you. Every year, Talkers Magazine, which is the uh, uh, the Bible, basically, of the talk radio industry. Talkers has been around for as long as I've been in the business. I think the magazine has been publishing for 25 or more years. Uh, Michael Harrison is the editor. He he was uh, one of my early mentors. And when we, uh, Louise and I had lunch with Michael when we were thinking of doing a radio show. And, um, uh, drove down to Massachusetts to meet with him, and he uh, gave us some very, very wise advice, which we have put into place, uh, you know, more than 15 years ago now. But every year, Talkers Magazine lists the top talk show hosts and the top markets, the number of people who are listening and the individual talk show hosts, and, and they have their, they call it the Heavy 100. And so the Heavy 100 just came out, and I'm just going to read you the top 10 talk show hosts in America. If you want to see this and see the numbers behind it and the math behind it and everything else, it's all over at talkers.com. But here's the ranking for the top 10 talk show hosts in the United States. Number one is Sean Hannity with Premier Networks. Number two is Rush Limbaugh. Number three is Dave Ramsey, who's generally kind of a financial advice uh, Christian a lot of Christian stations guy. Mark Levin, another conservative, is number four. Brian Kilmeade of Fox News, he's got his own radio show, he's number five. Number six is our friend Joe Madison, who, who does a, an extraordinary program on SiriusXM every morning. Number seven, another SiriusXM personality, Howard Stern. And number eight is this guy, Tom Hartman, number eight in the country. Number nine, Mike Gallagher with Salem Radio. Number 10, Glenn Beck with Premier Networks. So those are the top 10 talk show hosts in America, which is kind of cool. And it's kind of cool to be part of that. So I just, you know, bragging rights or whatever. I just wanted to, to share that with you. Rashid in Laurel, Maryland. Hey, Rashid, what's up? Hey there. Congratulations, uh, Tom, for making number eight uh, as part of the top 10 uh, talk show hosts. Congratulations. Thank brother. you. Very nice. I listen to your show religiously, and I, excellent. You're doing great work. There's an economist. I don't know if you've heard of him, like Nouriel Roubini. Does that name ring a bell to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's the guy who predicted the crash in 2008, which made him more famous than he was. But, yeah. Did you hear the latest interview with him on, I think it was on Yahoo Finance and some other places as well? It's about a 20 to 25 minute interview, and he's saying we shouldn't worry, be worrying just about the impact of uh, pandemic and the public health crisis on 2020 economy. We're talking about a depression, a decade of depression in the 2020s is what he's calling for. Yes. And the guy knows what he's yeah. talking about, you know. It's yeah. pretty scary yeah, stuff. I, I agree with him, and I, and I agree that you know we're in for some very, very difficult times, and we all need to be battening down the hatches and, and saving our pennies and doing whatever we can to downscale our lifestyle because it's going to get really, really bad. And we had Richard Wolf on this program. Yeah. He was saying that you know the way that the Fed, for the first time in a long decades, we've got a chairman of the Fed who is not an economist. He's a bankster, and he's been goosing yep. the economy in ways that make the banks richer and richer and richer and drive up the stock market. And I'm speculating that he's going to stop that goosing of the economy uh, the day after the election if Joe Biden wins. And then Don- and then the market's going to fall to you know, fall apart and everybody's going to say, oh, it's because they elected a Democrat. And then Trump is going to say, well, just let me stay in office or something. I mean, I'm just n- n- not shaking out well. But if that happens, and, and Richard Wolff said this would be the worst depression in the history of capitalism, the worst crash, then yeah, you're looking at a decade of crisis, a genuine decade of crisis. I think it's important for us to have a kind of a general strike. I mean, I think what's great is about the BLM uh, 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 activism in the streets is that it's sort of a harbinger of that, but it's time that we broaden it. I mean, I think they're sort of the tip of the spear of the black community because they yeah, the, the, the most problem, The problem with a general strike, though, Rashid, and sorry, forgive my interrupting, but I'm almost out of time and I want to get a couple more callers in here, but the, 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 the problem is that you've got people who are desperate, they're just hanging on by their fingernails economically, and they just don't have the luck of saying, you know, I'm going to walk off the job for a week here. Michael in Bronx, New York. Hey, Michael. I heard you mention about Trump wanting to reopen the schools. And I got to tell you, I smell a rat with that. Because think about it, throughout this pandemic, which he is largely responsible for, when kids were at home learning remotely or even being homeschooled, you know, they were never, ever subjected to the ongoing I shouldn't say ongoing, but the school violence that we've been hearing about, the bullying, the terrorizing, the mass well, shooting school shootings stuff. We had no yes. school shootings in March, April, May. 
Yeah, and a lot of which is due to Trump's rhetoric, his inciting of the Second Amendment, as we've constantly heard back and forth, and they think all the their so-called thoughts and prayers are just going to make it like a kumbaya thing. No, it ain't. So I'm wondering, why in the world is it that he wants to rush kids back to school right back to those conditions and then add on to the coronavirus itself, which no one has a freaking clue on how to handle it. Well, I think he's doing it because he believes that that will cause their parents to go back to work. And he wants to make the economy, quote, work so that the stock market will go up, although he's got the Fed pumping that like there's no tomorrow. You know, as a result, people will say, oh, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's all good and we should vote for Donald Trump. It's not going to work. You know, and in fact, I think it's going to be a disaster, both for the country and for for Trump. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Stick around. We'll be right back with more of your calls right after this. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Just a sign of the direction in which things are going and and a little other news here that I wanted to just put on the table and we can discuss. Canada poaches talent from the U.S. This is in today's Axios newsletter. And it's absolutely amazing. Canada has a program they call it's called Express Entry. Like pretty much every other developed country, if you want to move to another country, if you want to move to Canada, and you want to be able to legally work there and legally stay there longer than the, the limit that they put on tourists. And I don't know if that's you know 30 days or 90 days or whatever it may be. Every country is somewhat different. But if you want to stay there long term, you have to get the Canadian equivalent of a green card. You have to get a visa. You have to get permission to be in the country. And they have a program that's specifically designed in addition to their normal immigration programs, and I mean, this isn't even immigration technically, but it's handled by the Immigration Service. They have a program called Express Entry that is where, in some cases, the Canadian government will even reach out to people. But mostly, basically, what they say is, if you can prove to us that you have technical skills or knowledge 
you've got a PhD, you're a research scientist, you're an expert in a particular field, you're a medical doctor, um, you're, you know, fill in the blank. Somebody who has uh, not just a, a, the potential to have good earnings and not become a burden on society, in quotes, but more importantly, somebody who brings a skill set or a knowledge base that will actually help build Canada. Now that Donald Trump is saying to such people all around the world, we don't want you guys. We're saying it even to Canadians. Canada is saying to the world, we'll take you. You know, if you're going to help our country, we'll take you. Our express program, our express entry program is available to you. And from 2017 till the end of last year, and so this doesn't have anything to do with the COVID crisis, right? Because the COVID crisis happened to this year. But these are just statistics from the first two full years or the first three years, or 17, 18, and yeah, the first three years of the Trump administration. Express entry invitations to Canada of American citizens. In other words, Canada's outreach to American citizens increased 75%. 75 friggin' percent. They note, the Axios newsletter notes, with the White House moving to freeze green cards, including the coveted H-1B visas used in the tech sector, Canada has, a pushed, has pushed to attract talent across the border. So not only is Donald Trump trying to kill us, it seems, or at least behaving in a way that helps, helps more of us to die, shall we say, but he's also trying to dumb down the country to help make us more stupid or some variation on that, which raises all kinds of stuff, all kinds of really interesting questions. Susan, in uh, Alachua, Alachua, Florida. Thank you, Susan. What's up? You were talking about the homeless population earlier. All these Mm. people are going to be tossed out because they can't pay their rent now. And I'm thinking all these churches are sitting empty. And maybe the churches should reach out to their um, members and open up their basements or their conference rooms or whatever and and support a couple of these families. And uh, I'm not, I know that that won't cover everybody, but certainly it would cover a few, and some is better than none. You know, there are different slices to the homeless population. And for those people who simply are homeless because they literally lost their home. I mean, you know, somebody loses their job, they can't make their mortgage payment, they get evicted, and now they've got no place to go, and they don't have enough money to find a place to rent. For people like that, what you're suggesting, getting the churches involved or other civic organizations, uh, you know, obviously cities and towns and counties, all good stuff. But then there's another slice of the homeless population that are the paranoid schizophrenics, the people who just don't want to go inside. And there are other, you know, more marginalized kind of subslices that have very, very specific and special needs. Right across the board, none of these needs are being met by our society and haven't been since the days of Reagan. It gets problematic. You know, I get your point, Susan. I mean, you would think that the churches, if they actually were practicing uh, what Jesus said, you know, in in Matthew 25, basically, he said, I was homeless and you didn't take me in. Uh, That's not, you know, literally, he didn't say homeless, but, uh, you know, the the implication. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me, as I recall the phrase. And uh, you would think that they would want to do something about this. But, you know, when you talk to Jerry Falwell Jr. or, you know, Franklin Graham, they're like, yeah, you know. Jesus, who's that? We follow Paul. Charles in Miami. Hey, Charles, what's up? With this Republican Party, I can remember a couple years ago, someone calling in and you had the same sort of argument with a right winger because he was like, well, to the effect, like, let him die. And you was like, well, no, you can't just say that about human beings. I don't know if you remember all of that, but all it is, is it's just like they're heartless, they're cold, and without any sympathy or empathy for, for people, we're just numbers to them. And right now, it just seems like because of the tax break, if they mm-hmm. can um, save money by someone getting off of Medicare that way or any other governmental service, they'll take it. And my question yeah. is this. Yeah. If Trump was so invested in getting rid of this virus or the Republicans, how come they never came up with a, with a plan like, Say, for example, we got hit by a dirty bomb. 
what would be the first thing that we that you think would happen in these Americas? You know, in, in any American city that got hit by one or more dirty bombs. We are sure? completely unprepared for that, Charles. You know, you and I have talked about right. this in the past. We're unprepared for a biological <laughs> attack. We're unprepared for a natural disaster, which is arguably what COVID is, because we have no national health infrastructure, or at least no centralized national health infrastructure. It's not efficient. It's incredibly clumsy. It's insanely expensive, and it's got a whole bunch of blood-sucking leeches attached to pretty much every dimension of it, uh, you know, trying to take all our cash, and, and which is why we paid more than twice as much for health care as any other developed country of the world. So I'm with you. I, th- I think that this response has been insanely reckless. And there's another dimension to this that I want you to, to also think about, and it's the, the um, immigrant factor. Because this thing about what they did to the people on the border in those cages, and now they also know that probably some people won't go to the hospital because Oh, they're afraid of getting busted by ICE. Yeah. And then you end up with COVID spreading its way through the undocumented immigrant community. And and it's right now it's burning through these uh, children's prisons that these concentration camps that Donald Trump and uh, and his buddies have built. And uh, it's just it's a screaming disaster. Charles, thanks for the call. It's always nice to hear from you. And you always offer something useful and some insight that is useful for the conversation. Elizabeth in Seattle. Hey, Elizabeth, you wanted to get back to education? I do. Something that has been disturbing me, and you just touched on it now, but when I was studying multicultural, taking some multicultural courses, if you want to eliminate a group or a race, first you limit their use of their home language, and then you begin to eliminate their youth. And you mentioned that in the beginning, there was great publicity about it was mainly uh, COVID-19 19 was mainly eliminating the elderly. Well, that was seen as a good thing because of Social Security. And then it was identified eliminating the blacks. Well, that was considered a good thing, um, unfortunately. And then there was shift to, um, oh, it's it's COVID is beginning to um, infect children. Aha, uh-huh. now we have, we can get three birds with one stone because the push became open schools. Children are, are resistant. Well, they're not. However, if we look at the crowded conditions in our underserved communities, they're predominantly children of color. They're multi-generational families, which there you have the elderly. And so we're eliminating our youth. We are impacting communities of color, and we are um, impacting the elderly. And so by opening the schools, you're getting a large degree of infection and elimination of certain groups. Just, I it's almost that. as if Stephen Stephen Miller's um, uh, I lack a word uh, his torture program for Hispanic asylum seekers in the United States um, just you know and the, the, all the worst racial aspects of that just got overlaid on top of federal health policy and now federal education policy. And, you know, Stephen Miller is probably not only not upset about children who have died in detention, other than the, you know, the, the, the fact that it looks bad for him, but may even be, you know, I don't know. I mean, is it too much to think that the guy is gloating? It's mind boggling. Elizabeth, thank you for the call. This is a tough one. Is it possible that these guys are that Machiavellian, that evil, that, that committed to their white supremacist racial theories? You're listening to Tom Hartman. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Randy in Ottawa, Iowa. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. There's something that's been bothering me. I think it's the elephant in the room, or one of the elephants in the room besides COVID, and it's the economics. And you, just by coincidence, when you commented earlier, let's reverse uh, the Chinese economic buildup. 
that's what Joni Ernst is fighting for now in this election season against her Democratic opponent. The reason I called today is that I wanted to know if you remembered the legislation that this was inserted into. That would be the tax incentives for outsourcing manufacturing to China. It would have been in 05, 06 under the George I Bush administration. Believe, I believe it was the tail end of the Clinton administration, and it was giving China a permanent most favored nation status with regard to trade. Or permanent, you know, it was PNTR. Bernie used to rave about this on this program. Uh, permanent normal trade relations, PNTR. I don't believe um, so. You don't think it was Clinton, this is, it was Bush? No, this was in 2005, 2006. And it was specific legislation that gave tax incentives to corporations that outsourced jobs. Mm. And the okay. Democrats tried to reverse that in 2009 before they got thrown out in 2010. But they okay, failed. Randy, I, I don't I don't know the details on that. If, if you can find them, send them to me and I'll report on them here. Um, you know, I, th- there have been a okay. lot of stages to this thing. And, 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 you know, and China's done a very good job of, of having their people lobbying the United States and and American companies, okay. you know, have have just you know basically betrayed their country. And uh, so, you know, true. Here we are. True. The point is that that this earns what they're not saying is I think this goes clear back to do you remember the term uh, that the Republicans are using public private partnerships? I yeah. think this goes back to and I think this is evolving into a situation where the Republicans are going to reverse their drastic uh, free trade uh, initiatives and their corporate subsidies for uh, outsourcing by um, using taxpayer dollars to uh, bring those jobs back or bring that manufacturing back. And uh, there's this catch there that, that is, it's in glare, that it's, was obvious. Do you remember the, the um, carrier incident in Indiana where Trump tried to save the jobs? Uh, right, and they, they shipped uh, them overseas for, anyway. They shipped yeah, them to, they went to, to Mexico, Mexico. Though, didn't they? Yeah, yeah they went to Mexico. But that, in that deal, see, that was a revolving door of tax dollars. The The federal government was subsidizing tax subsidies to carrier to outsource those jobs to Mexico. But yet uh, Indiana ended up getting stuck giving tax subsidies to carrier to keep the jobs here. And what happened right. is that the uh, carrier was going to get more money for sending the jobs to Mexico, which you just pointed out. Uh, they ended up sending those jobs out anyways, the majority of them, two-thirds of them. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, this is... Because they were... Yep. I, I was just going to say, Randy, this is this is just an elaborate game that corporations have been playing for the last 20, 30, 40 years, uh, in a big way the last 20 years, because they have been empowered. I mean, you know, we this is... Uh, actually, what you're talking about here is at the core of uh, my book that's coming out in uh, in a few weeks, uh, Oligarchy, how, or excuse me, a Monopoly, Hidden History of Monopoly, and how, you know, how big corporations stole the American dream. And, and, you know, that's essentially it. They bought the Republican Party and then they had the Republican Party make, you know, everything more profitable for corporations to hell with the American worker. In fact, they don't even particularly like the American worker. They only want American workers to have enough money to buy their products, period, full stop. And, you know, well, uh, pick your company. Yep. And it's happened so slowly. It's evolved so slowly that yeah. if you really don't put it in context and have take the long point of view, um, it's really hard to see it. But the, it's scary. Uh, this bring jobs back and, and they're going to give them more tax subsidies. Uh, yeah. uh, to do it. Now, I remember um, when this thing started back in the 1970s, I was living in Michigan, you know, which was, you know, we made cars in Michigan and uh, Toyota and Honda started selling really, really cheap, junky cars in the United States. This was in the 70s. And if you had one of those cars and I, I had bought one used for 35 bucks, that, I was very proud of the fact that for the about the first 10 years that I was driving, I never paid more than $35 for a car. 
And yeah. wherever I parked, it would get keyed. I mean, it was just covered with key marks. <laughs> if you had a foreign car, you know, your car was going to get keyed. It was just like that was part of the price of having a foreign car. And 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 that was the very and, and there were books about, you know, China, uh, you know, rising and China was or excuse me, Japan. This was Japan at that time. That was in the 70s. And then, of course, in the 90s, it was China. And uh, but uh, Randy, I got to move along. But it, it's a it, this is a serious issue that we've got to we got to pay some attention to. Uh, Kathy in Madison, Wisconsin, you wanted to correct me on the Hatch Act. Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call. It doesn't apply to the president and the vice president. They're exempt. Um, however, there are some things that they can't do. They really can't recruit other people to. Uh, violate the act who are not covered by it. The thing is, there's a lot of other people that are also exempt, like high-level uh, people in the cabinet, that kind of thing. So it gets a little murky. Um, they are also supposed to be reimbursing uh, the government for any expenses that they incur while they are engaged in, you know, political activity. Campaign. Yeah, I mean, the reason for this, Kathy, was so that if the president wants to fly to a fundraiser, he's going to fly on Air Force One. There's expenses associated with that. The campaigns yeah. used to reimburse. But yeah, no, I, I, I get it. I, and I'm familiar with that. Uh, Thank you, Kathy. I, and, and by the way, Ivanka yesterday was saying, oh, buy Goya. You know, the, the, uh, this is these uh, Mexican food products because uh, the president of the company has endorsed Trump. That, I think, was a violation of the Hatch Act, too, although Ivanka doesn't take a paycheck. So I don't know. What an amazing time. Sydney in Petaluma, California. Hey, Sydney, what's on your mind today? Oh, hi. I was calling to say maybe we could all be talking about the Bill of Rights and the Geneva Convention and kind of what, what people agreed I think most Americans now feel like we're on the wrong track. So maybe we look at, well, where were we on the right track? We were on the right track with the Bill of Rights. We were on the right track with um, everything we fought for in World War II. And we were on the right track with the New Deal. And we could just be using those kind of words that people tend to agree with and, um, and make a big deal about it, like all come together around those things. Like I think the Green New Deal already is taking place. Everyone talks about that now. But I think we have to look at, you know, the anti-fascist stuff that um, we did. I, I, I mean, it struck me what you said about, um, you know, Trump using the um, excuse of, of Bush getting away with torture. And I think Obama got away with assassination. And so if we could um, mm -hmm. say we're not doing that anymore, we're going to we're going back to our ideals. Thank back you. to first principles. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Sydney, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. Yes, I completely agree. It's time to get back to first principles. But first, we've got to, we've got to fight off the fascists. Mm -hmm. Gwendolyn in Rialto, California. Hey, Gwendolyn, what's up? Do you know the Blackwater Group? Uh, mm -hmm. the name yeah, it's called guy. Z now. But yeah. What is it called? I think it's XI, but I, I, I might even be wrong on that. In yeah, any case, yeah, I know they've renamed they themselves. But, yeah. Renamed themselves since Blackwater had such a bad name. But you know the yep. brother, and what's the brother of Betsy DeBras that owns that Blackwater? Mm -hmm. Eric Prince, yes. Yes, that's right. A couple of years ago, Rachel Baddett reported that, you know, he had met with people in this island, and he actually wanted to have his, the whole military be privatized. So that was his aim. So my suspicion is, and I really do believe, the one that took place in Portland, Oregon, which which they're there now is his group, mm. and I really believe yeah, makes, that they're going to be. They're going to be the. It prompt. makes sense, Gwendolyn, but but it, it, you know all the reporting, and this is why I wanted to get Ken Klippenstein on to talk about this. All the reporting seems to indicate that it's actually being largely drawn out of ICE and Department of Homeland Security, and right. uh, that these are the Border Patrol people. Um, you know, nobody's trying to break into our country right now. In fact, Canada has sealed the border on their end. Mexico has sealed the border on their end. They don't want us going there. So the Border okay. Patrol people have nothing better to do. So Trump says, hey, you know, go into some cities that are run by Democrats and raise some hell. Yeah, yeah, true. true. That, 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 I mean, this is, this is his Praetorian Guard. I, re I really think it is, you know, the, yeah. the, uh, somehow, it's his, uh, somehow his group will be part of the crowd. They're part of it. Yep. I'm with you. Jack in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Jack, you get the last 30 seconds. Why aren't people paying more attention to the fact 
that United States citizens are no longer allowed to go to Canada, Mexico, or Europe. How many of right. us do business there? I hear nothing about it. It's incredible. Right. We are pariahs. Yeah. And we, we can't even do pariahs. quarantine. We're at my, you know, I heard from my Belgian collaborator. He said, yeah, I'm really sorry. You guys are out. You can't come. Period. Yeah. Yeah. And this is and the, and the whole world is looking at us in horror. Jack, thank you. Glenn. Oh, I, I oh, I'm out of time. Glenn, I'm, I'm very sorry. Call back next week and uh, we'll go for it. Special thanks to my executive producers, Louise Hartman and Sean Taylor. My video director, Nate Atwell, he's brilliant. Uh, Jamie Holly, our webmaster. Joyce the Hammer Nance, who answers our phones and does such a marvelous job. Nigel Peacock and Sue Nethercutt, who keep our websites uh, intact and do all that work. Patrick Hoyt and Geraldine Halbert, who do our podcasts. Dave Fulton and Chase Spross, our engineers. Ron Hartenbaum, our business manager. And the folks who are moderating our uh, chat room over on YouTube, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, and Jabbermocky. Thank you all for helping make this program number eight and for keeping us going. And thank you for being with You've us. Been Tag, you're it. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 